Good evening, everybody. A very warm welcome to uh, the LSE tonight. Um, good to see so many of you out on a Monday evening. Um, welcome to this talk by Alec J. Ross, um, which we're putting on in partnership between Polis, which is the journalism and society think tank here at the LSE, and LSE Ideas, which is the Institute for Diplomacy and Strategy at the LSE. I think that kind of sums up um, some of the kind of issues uh, that we'll be talking about tonight, very much about information and politics in the digital age. I was just saying to Alec, the last time I was uh, in this uh, old theatre for an event, it was Bill Clinton who was doing a kind of, you know, audience, a grand audience, and... um, high point of my career that he actually read out a tweet question that I put to him. There you go. Um, which, uh, and uh, I think that sort of neatly sums up, at least on the surface, the technology giving us access to people in power. Um, last time that Alec was here at the LSC to talk was back in 2011, which was kind of at the beginning of the whole uh, WikiLeaks um, revelations I think they'd published the Afghan and Iraq war logs, uh, but they hadn't got to the diplomatic cables yet. And at that point, Alec was working right in the heart of the State Department as a senior advisor for innovation to uh, US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Um, Alec is somebody who's got a long track record of working in this field. He worked for uh, non-profits uh, in housing and education uh, before he went on to work for uh, Barack Obama's election campaign, and then, as I say, was right in the heart of uh, uh, American diplomacy at the State Department, working on uh, fascinating uh, projects like the 21st Century Statecraft Programme, which delivered enormous resources to democracy campaigners around the world. Tonight's hashtag is LSE Matrix. Slightly tongue-in-cheek, I guess. Um, We are really here, I think. Um, And tonight's uh, title for the talk by Alec J. Ross is Power in the Information Age. So please welcome Alec J. Ross to the stage. All right. Thank you, Charlie, for that introduction. You read it just like my mother wrote it. (laughs) Very nice of you. Thank you. Look, I I don't want to speak overly long in terms of our prepared remarks tonight because I find that the question and answer uh, sessions like this can oftentimes be more interesting than the prepared remarks themselves. And now that I'm not a diplomat anymore, I welcome undiplomatic uh, questions. Um, And now that I'm a diplomat, I don't have to give diplomatic answers anymore either. Um, let Let me start off by saying that I I am not old. But I oftentimes feel old when I'm at a university. I feel old when I'm at a university sometimes because when I was in university, I didn't send or receive a single email. Yet, every day, 144 billion emails are sent. During every sentence that I say today, 20 emails will be sent. And 20 million emails will be sent. I also feel old because I didn't own a mobile phone until I was 28 years old. And yet, 8.6 trillion uh, text messages are sent every year. 
8.6 trillion SMS messages a year, and the average university student sends 88 text messages a day. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, that dude's old. You're like, yeah, when he was going to school, you know, there were you know, dinosaurs on campus. I'm telling you, folks, I'm not old. I was in university in the 1990s. It's just that a lot of things have changed since then, particularly in the communications space. But communications aren't the only things that have significantly changed since I was in university 20 years ago. Uh, the topic of the speech tonight is about power. And the change in the nature of the way that power is exercised today and the nature of geopolitical power today versus uh, the time that I was in university 20 years ago is, is significantly different and continuing to change. And it's on that topic that I'm going to speak, very, again, very briefly tonight, uh, but which I hope we'll have a lot of questions and answers about. Um, I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who was a social entrepreneur. I, I started an NGO in a basement in 2000. Like, I'm not a techie. I was a medieval history major. Uh, but I cared about fighting poverty. And I started an NGO in a basement now 13 years ago because I thought that the only way for people growing up in poverty to be able to compete and succeed in our increasingly technology-rich, knowledge-based economy was to have access to the tools of the digital age and know how to effectively use them. I grew up in a poor coal mining part of the United States called West Virginia, and I was an inner-city school teacher in Baltimore, Maryland. And in the community where I grew up, in the community where I taught, it was decreasingly the case that you could get a job based on the strength of your shoulders. You know, the industrial and manufacturing base where I grew up and where I was a teacher evaporated you know, during the 1980s and 1990s. And so I started this nonprofit in a basement to help people in poverty uh, be able to connect to this digital world that we all live in today and, th and therefore be able to get jobs. And, and started with three buddies in a basement and grew into become a pretty large global organization. And it was from that that Barack Obama recruited me to run technology and media policy for his presidential campaign. Uh, that went well. <laughs> and it went well at Hillary Clinton's expense. And it was from that that she said, you know, she came to me after she was asked to be Secretary of State, and she said, look, I've, you know, in essence, I have to fill a whole federal government into one department. Um, but, you know, for all of the people that I know, I don't really have somebody who is native to the impact of information networks and the exercise of power. And so come work for me and be sort of my internet guy. You can make up your own title, which is why I had a really cool title, Senior Advisor for Innovation. He said, you know, look, there are 196 countries on planet Earth. You know, you, you can work in 195 of them. You know, all but the U.S., the State Department works on. And I worked for her for 1,493 days, four years, working, working across the hall from her. And that was a wonderful opportunity for me to be witness to power in its most traditional, raw sense. Um, and if there's one thing, if there's one thing, one thing that I learned in 1,493 days on the job, it's this. There's a big shift in geopolitical power taking place in the world right now. Most people think about shifts in geopolitical power 
just in terms of geography. Oh, yes, they say, power is moving from the United States and, and Europe to Asia, or from the global north to the global south. Now, whether that is true or not, or the degree to which that is true, I will leave to other distinguished speakers at the London School of Economics. Uh, but what I do know to be true is that, in, is that in just about all 196 countries on planet Earth, there is a big shift in geopolitical power. And that shift in power is from hierarchies, traditional hierarchies, like governments and like large media organizations. And that shift in power is to citizens and networks of citizens and connection technologies, technologies that connect people to information and each other, are facilitating that shift in power. Now, the shift in power is non-total. You know, you know I always get questions afterwards where people say, you know, you say government has no power, but look at this. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the power concentrated in the hands of political leaders today, a small number of political leaders today, relative to those... 15, 20, 25 years ago is diminished. The power of the media is not diminished, but it is more fragmented. It's not concentrated in the hands of one, two, or three media barons. It's more distributed. And this, this redistribution of power from hierarchies to citizens and networks of citizens has had a remarkable impact on the conduct of foreign policy, it has a remarkable impact on governance and just during the 1,493 days that I was at the State Department, I got to witness some spectacular examples of this. Um, and the tension, I think, first and foremost, are, is to the traditional leaders of these hierarchies. You know, the people who 15, 20, 25 years ago could have gotten in a room together and determined what, how markets were going to function differently or determined... Uh, you know, how the geopolitics of the world powers were going to play out in the years ahead. And I think that the fragmentation of this power uh, has had enormous impacts. And I just want to give a couple examples of that. Uh, first, have any of you ever heard of WikiLeaks? <laughs> One or two of you? Yeah, me too. Um, WikiLeaks would not have been physically possible 10 years ago. The combination of bandwidth and processing power available at the desktop of a 22-year-old army private would have been insufficient to, to download and distribute 252,000 cables. Now that I'm not in government anymore, I don't have to say alleged cables. <laughs> further, the, <laughs> further, the WikiLeaks organization itself is truly a creature of the present day. It's transnational and virtual in nature. It's largely made up of, of members and followers instead of paid staff. It has a web address instead of a street address. You know, one of, the, one of my less favorite moments at the State Department was explaining to Hillary Clinton what a mirror site is. Um, you know, we have the, there's a part of the U.S. government that a few of you may have heard of called the NSA. And they have spectacular capabilities. Um, but it's, it's all secret, so I'm sure you don't know anything about it. Um, and, you know, as these cables, as these cables, it became apparent that the cables now resided outside of the government networks in which they were supposed to live. You know, there were questions, you know, is there something the NSA can do? You know, my goodness, they've got, you know, 30,000 people, $10 billion budget or something like that. 
And it was remarkable to a lot of political leaders that, you know, a bunch of activists, a bunch of Scandinavian activists, could distribute these cables in a way that was completely, that was invulnerable to the concentrated efforts of, you know, a U.S. government organization and its deca-billion-dollar institutions. And so, you know, I think about, you know, somebody like Bradley Chelsea Manning uh, or Edward Snowden having capabilities today that historically would have required, you know, a massive spy operation in years of operations to you know, infiltrate networks to capture the content, to then, you know, get it outside of the country, to distribute it and other such things. Today, you know, somebody with a with a little glad bag full of memory sticks is able to has capabilities that once would have been reserved for only the world's most large and sophisticated spy services. It's really fascinating to see. Um, you know, there are other examples that I worked on myself while I was at at the State Department, you know, and of, and of course, this was all about trying to leverage citizen power for, you know, what we what we called good. You know, one of the one of the last projects I worked on before I left State was focusing on the cartel-controlled cities in northern Mexico. And you know, as is the case with a lot of the work that I did at the State Department, most of my jobs began with Hillary Clinton being annoyed about something. <laughs> And her not being the least bit satisfied about the answers that she was getting from the bureaucracy. And she'd spent a lot of time in Mexico, and we were spending billions of dollars to try to throttle back the effectiveness of these very powerful drug cartels in northern Mexico. And we were not making any progress whatsoever. And so, you know, as my projects often began, they began with Hillary Clinton being annoyed. And she said, well, you know, send Alec and his, you know, crazy gang down to Mexico. See what you can come up with. And so I went down there with a, you know, crazy gang of 30-somethings, you know, to say, hey, we're going to take down the cartels. And one of the things that we found out was that one of the big reasons why there was so much violence in these northern Mexico border cities was that people were no longer reporting crime. And they were no longer reporting crime because if you did, you'd get shot in the head because of the degree to which the cartels had infiltrated the police forces. And, you know, what we said is, well, what we need to do is we need to be able to restore anonymous crime reporting. And so what we did is we set up a, we set up a system where people, even with like the cheapest, you know, 10-pound cell phones, mobile phones, who, you know, would send text messages, we set up a system where their text messages would be encrypted and where they would go to, you know, a very carefully controlled site where only heavily screened federal police would actually see the crime reports and would be able to pull out the personally identifiable information. And with this, crime reporting shot up about 80 percent, conviction shot up about 40 percent, and a number over the last year of the big cartel leaders have been taken down. Uh, because of this anonymous crime reporting scheme. And this is all, this just comes from, you know, grandmas in the barrio in, you know, these little Mexican towns with their cell phones now being able to give a measure measure of actionable intelligence to police forces uh, in Mexico. 
Now, with the shift in power from, from hierarchies to citizens and networks of citizens, the reaction of government more often than not is to feel overwhelmed. They feel a loss of control. You know, the amount of control that a prime minister or president has today is significantly less than what his or her predecessor had 20 years ago. The 21st century is a terrible time to be a control freak. And when I spend time with presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers, CEOs, you know, I ask them what has changed for the what has changed in ten years, what has changed in fifty years, what has in fifteen years, what has changed in twenty years, and what they almost inevitably say is, "I have so much less control than I used to have." And while I think that this is 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 both a good and a bad thing, I think that it is an irreversible thing. And so I think that our government institutions need to grow more comfortable with the loss of control. They need to understand it, they need to accept it, and they need to adapt their practices in kind. Because the kind of control that Margaret Thatcher had, the kind of control that Ronald Reagan had over a media message or over a foreign policy engagement or something like that is gone and it's not coming back. the response to a lot of this loss of control or this sense that these spaces are uncontrollable has been pervasive surveillance. Um, you know, I, I said before the Edward Snowden revelations, and some people paid attention and some people didn't, I said, you know those movies you watch where there's sort of the eye in the sky and there's like total information awareness? So, you know, that is not far from true. I think that people today know that, people know today and people accept that that is closer to the reality than Hollywood fiction. And the kind of information awareness that governments and others want to have over the citizens is something that university students like yourselves are going to have to determine what the norms are for the years ahead. Where we, where we are today is, I think, in particular about the Snowden, rela- Snowden revelations is if something, was techn- if something is technologically possible and if something is legal, then intelligence services and law enforcement institutions are doing it. Now, I think that one of the pieces of synthesis that I have and I, that I think most people have is that just because something's technologically possible and just because something is legal doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And so where I, where I believe is that we need to do some, some new norm setting around what governments can and should do uh, to capture personal information. You know, I, I left government before the Snowden revelations, but I dealt with this. I dealt with this issue of surveillance and its implications, uh, myself, in many different, in, on many different occasions. You know, one example, one thing that I worked on, again, one of my last projects at the State Department was focused on assassinations in Syria. And this short version of the story, in the unclassified version of the story, is this. Uh, a number of people were being assassinated in Syria because of the GPS on their mobile phone. 
And there was collaboration between the Syrian intelligence services and the Syrian telecommunications company such that they were able to geolocate people with remarkable precision, precision because of the GPS on their mobile phone, and they were then able to do surgical assassinations. I think the best known of this, I can't remember her name, is a journalist. She worked for a French media outlet, woman with an eye patch. She was basically killed by a strike uh, that took place because the Syrian intelligence service was able to identify where she was based on the GPS on her mobile phone. And, you know, the response from the U.S. to this was, is there something we can do to stop these assassinations? So what my team did is we, you know, working with a bunch of sort of good-hearted hackers, uh, developed, uh, developed something that allowed people to obscure the GPS on their cell phone. So instead of knowing, oh, you know, he's standing, you know, at the podium inside the old theater at the London School of Economics, you know, send a cruise missile or a mortar through that window. You know, they now would be able to say, well, you know, he's somewhere east of Mayfair and somewhere north of the river, you know. So, you know, we were able to, in advance, we were able to advance, you know, in this case, our goals. But nevertheless, it took probably 30 assassinations before we even picked up on it. Uh, and another example I'll give you uh, from sort of the ugly side of this government, sur- government surveillance uh, came from Iran. Uh, you know, one of the things that happened after the Green Movement was with the mass arrests that took place in Iran after June of 2009, one of the, the protocol after arresting a protester would be you take their mobile phone and then you torture them to get all of their passwords so that their address book, their SMS records, and their emails would essentially be a guidebook to the dissent movements in Iran. And so we created a panic button so that literally if you thought you were going to be arrested in Tehran, you would, you know, key in a you would key in a code to your mobile phone. It would wipe and store your communications to the cloud in a way that couldn't key out if you, you couldn't be keyed out if you were being tortured, and it would send a distress signal to your uh, close associates saying, hey, I think I'm being arrested by the Mukhabarat or the IRGC or others. And so what's been fascinating to me to see is to see the impact of surveillance um, on people around the world. Now, I'm certainly not likening the use of surveillance in Syria and Iran to the use of surveillance in the United States. Um, you know, you can, I think it's important to distinguish between the technological capabilities and their uses. But what I think is reasonable to assume for the years ahead is that these tools are not going to grow less powerful. They're only going to grow more powerful. We're not going to turn off a technology that exists today. The question is, what are the norms? What are the regulations? What are the rules for the road in a world that is going to have increasing technological capabilities for omniscience. Uh, So with that, let let me turn to three issues that I think are unresolved um, as I leave government, you know, after 1,493 days and things that I'm leaving to you guys to figure out. Um, Number one is privacy. You know, I think that this generation of political leadership is not going to come up with a set of privacy policies and norms 
that are going to be widely accepted by your generation. And I think that those of you who have grown up digital natives are going to have to come up with a set of policies, a set of policies and policy norms that inform what the rules of the road are going to be in the domain of privacy for the years ahead. I mean, I'm at a point right now, just in my own communications, where I assume I have no privacy. Um, you know, the the, the um, number of times I'm cyber attacked. Uh, from China and Russia is, you know, outrageous. I mean, my name was a banned search term on the Chinese Internet for a year and a half, um, which Madam Secretary told me was a compliment. (laughs) So now if you go to my Gmail, all you're going to find out is what time my kids' soccer games are, you know. But But that ought not be the case. And what I hope is that we can establish some norms we can establish some privacy some some policies that allow for privacy in an increasingly interconnected world the second area that i would say is completely unresolved goes to the weaponization of code cyber conflict in a manner of speak i think about this almost like the 1940s and nuclear and and and, and the creation of nuclear weapons we're in a moment in time where there are these new weapons uh, and there's no sort of treaty framework for how you can use the weapons. You know, the United States recently declared the cyber domain a domain of warfare, along with air, land, sea, and space. So we can literally conduct kinetic activities in the cyber domain uh, with the legal jurisdiction of you know, conducting acts of war. The difference, though, between the 1940s and nuclear power, though, and today is that, that it, there are not just a small number of states like the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics who have access to these weapons, and there is not a doctrine of mutually assured destruction, destruction for its use. It no longer requires a large nation state to develop uh, incredibly potent malware. And so I think that, you know, absent, absent sort of a treaty framework that governs the use of cyber weapons, I think that the, the Internet is only going to become an increasingly weaponized place. And it's only going to become a more bellicose place. The third thing I would point to is something that's just really beginning to emerge right now, and that is the conversion of currency to code. Nothing says state sovereignty like our banknotes. We put pictures of our presidents on ours. You put pictures of your sovereigns on yours. You know. Nothing says state sovereignty like our currency, and with all of the controls and the structures that come with that. I'm really intrigued uh, by the rise of cryptocurrencies. They're really small right now. There's only about $8 billion of cryptocurrency in circulation, about $5 billion of which is Bitcoin. Um, But what's fascinating to me is to see how cryptocurrencies work in in a way that is quite countervailing to uh, the way that central banking institutions, the way that finance ministries, exchequers, and others uh, control 
currencies and currency flows in that country. I expect the amount of cryptocurrency in circulation to go from $8 billion to about $300 billion in two years, two to three years. Now, that doesn't mean Bitcoin. I think, I think of Bitcoin as like Lycos, Infoseek, Webcrawler, AltaVista, you know, those, those search engines from the 1990s uh, that don't exist today but which were useful at the time. I think that there will be a cryptocurrency or a couple cryptocurrencies that emerge that have more transparency, that have um, maybe state sponsorship, uh, that have some controls that I think will then lend themselves to uh, mass circulation. But this is an area, too, where I have a feeling for your generation, cryptocurrencies are going to be of increasing significance. Let me, let me close my formal remarks by... Uh, making two observations. You know, I want to give you all the advice that I give to government leaders and CEOs uh, around, the, around the world. You know, most of my, my job to this point, you know, truthfully, my job for the last seven years, you know, back when I was running tech and media policy for the Obama campaign in the last four years, serving as Hillary Clinton's senior advisor for innovation, I'm sort of like a CEO's coach or foreign minister's coach. You know, I help them understand, you know, what's coming around the corner and sort of some of the adjustments that they ought to make. And so I wanted to share with you uh, two things, two pieces of advice that I'm giving to all these CEOs and, and very senior government officials who are coming to me for advice today. Number one is whether you're CEO, president, prime minister, anybody else, the single best piece of, of advice I can give you is, empower women within your workforce and within your society. Um, it's remar- and, and do it, you know, if you want to do it for reasons of fairness, great, but I actually think the best reason to more fully empower women in the workforce is out of raw self-interest. There's a study by Goldman Sachs that was done recently that said if you reduce barriers to full participation by women in the economy, the per capita GDP in Asia would go up 14%. The same study said that if you, if you reduce the barriers to full participation by women in the economy in the Eurozone, you'd go up 9%. Now, that, there is no stimulus program, there is no austerity program that can produce that kind of micro, macroeconomic impact. I also, think about, I also think that it's increasingly important to give women a seat at the grown-ups table when you look at this through the lens of security issues. So from economic issues, I cannot come up with a better economic growth plan than to create more space for women. But I think the argument's even better from a security perspective. Because first of all, let's be honest, all of this conflict, all of these wars, all of this, all of this conflict has been generated almost entirely by men. And you know, there was a study that was done of the last 200 treaties that were negotiated. Last 200 treaties were negotiated, the majority of which failed. And it, and, it, and it identified, it said the percentage of female negotiators in those treaty negotiations, only 8% of them were women. 8% of the negotiators in the last 200 treaties were women. And if you then look at the impact, though, of those 8% of women, they had an enormously outsized impact, on positive impact on the treaties themselves. And in fact, those treaties that had a higher concentration of women negotiators 
were more likely, had greater level of durability and were more likely to be successful. So I take away from, you know, my time in government that, you know, the single best thing you can do economically and as a security matter is to give women more seats at the grown-ups table. Uh, the second thing goes to entrepreneurship in Europe. So, you know, whenever I talk to a, whenever I talk to a government leader in Europe, I cite this study that came out about six months ago from Telefonica that really got inside my head a little bit. It was the largest study ever done of millennials, so people from age 18 to about 34. And this, one of the survey questions was a simple binary. The question was, I can be an entrepreneur in my country, yes or no? And the global, the, the, the global percentage of people saying yes to that was 68%. In North America, it was 77%. In Asia, it was 70%. In Latin America, it was 69%. In the Middle East and Africa, it was 68%. In Central and Eastern Europe, it was 64%. And in Western Europe, it was only 55%. I think that's a big problem. When only 55% of the people in a country aged 18 to 34 think that they can become an entrepreneur, and then you look at that relative to peers around the globe, I think that that's a big problem. And I think that, and when I think about that, what I think is that much of Europe, though I think it's less so uh, the case in the United Kingdom than in much of Mediterranean Europe, I think that much of Europe is in a gray twilight. You know, Benjamin Disraeli said that, six, uh, said that success is the child of audacity. And I, I very much believe that to be true. Success is the child of audacity. A um, yeah, hundred years ago, the president of the United States was Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt said, It is far better to dare mighty deeds, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they dwell in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And so my worry right now for much of Europe is that it is stuck in this gray twilight and that there is insufficient audacity that is going to be necessary to unleash the industries and businesses of the future because I do believe that the industries and businesses of the future are going to be the children of audacity and... and uh, so as a final note, I will say to those of you who are contemplating your careers in the future, stay out of the gray twilight. So with that, I'll conclude, and I'll, I'll look forward to your questions. And let me just reemphasize the point that I welcome undiplomatic questions. Don't censor yourself. Thank you all.